0: Hello, Behind the Irishman fans. I'm Chris Tapley, and I host The Call Sheet, a Netflix podcast that brings you detailed conversations about the making of your favorite Netflix films and series. What you're about to hear is a special bonus episode for the Behind the Irishman series, namely my interview with film editor Thelma Schoonmaker and sound mixers Tom Fleischman and Eugene Gerty. We talk about constructing this vast epic, how Thelma's work makes the massive film sort of fly by, and how Tom and Eugene's work uniquely played against their instincts. I hope you enjoy, and if you want more interviews with the talent behind Netflix films and series, please check out The Call Sheet wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. got a packed episode this week. Let's start by hearing from my first guest.
1: My name is Thelma Schoonmaker and my craft is editing.
0: Thelma Schoonmaker is the legendary, now eight-time Oscar-nominated, three-time Oscar-winning editor of pretty much all of director Martin Scorsese's portfolio. She's as integral to the success of his films as the maestro himself. It's a collaboration for the ages. Their latest work together is The Irishman. The Netflix original film that recently racked up 10 Oscar nominations, Thelma's work among them. At three and a half hours, the film is a contemporary American epic, and yet it moves like lightning. Each sequence, as we'll soon discuss, propels the vast narrative of 20th century history along, while the intimate humanist touches never suffer under that weight. Today we sit down with Thelma to discuss this gargantuan undertaking. How did the assembly of footage reflect the vibe and disposition of a guy like Frank Chirin? How did she and Martin Scorsese establish a pace that both drew viewers in and allowed such a dense story to wash right over them? And that's not all. As a bonus, a few weeks back, I also sat down with sound mixers Tom Fleischman and Eugene Gearty, Eugene is also a sound editor, to discuss their work on the film. So stick around until the end to hear from them as well in this all-encompassing Irishman post-production episode. Let's get going. So Thelma, I wanted to start out by talking about performance here. You know, Mr. Scorsese came into this wanting it to be very straightforward storytelling, quiet, kind of reflective of the main character. So starting there, actually, uh, you've noted that he didn't want to explain too much, that he wanted to respect the audience yeah. to kind of understand and in so what's an example of that? Because I'm curious if that went against any kind of instincts for you at all or for him or
1: Yes, I, I would say it did. I mean, I was concerned sometimes about whether we weren't explaining some things. Mm-hmm. And it was very funny. I would say, Do you think we could just explain this one little thing? And he would say, No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that this comes, I think maybe you have read, this comes from my husband Michael Powell, telling us when we first met him, never explain, by which he meant Your audience is ahead of you. You try and stay ahead of them and don't ever think down on them, Mm -hmm. uh, which is respect them. And Marty really has always wanted to do that. He loves watching narrative movies, but he hates making them. So this time he just absolutely committed himself. Otherwise, it would have been a documentary about Jimmy Hoffa, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what he didn't want. There are some... Wonderful details that I think people will discover, like yourself, who see it four times. The Joe Pesci character owns all the Howard Johnsons on the way to Detroit. Mm. And that's why in that incredible scene where he explains to Bob that he's being flown to Detroit and you gradually realize what Bob is going to have to do, because he owns the Howard Johnson, he's told the manager... Don't let anybody in here for breakfast. That's why they're alone. So there are lovely little things like that. But he was right. I mean, you can't litter a film like this, which is supposed to be so simple, with endless voiceover. You know, mm-hmm. it would ruin the whole scene if you said, by the way, the reason, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he's right. But there there were moments like that. And I, I was concerned sometimes whether people were understanding. But we extensively interview people afterwards. And it became clear to me that, that people were not confused. They were getting it, which is great.
0: It sweeps you right along. I mean, I'm going to get into the pacing about it later, but mm. it really does just sweep you right along. Let's talk about Robert De Niro's performance. I uh, think he's amazing in this, um, uh, his best work in years. We, yeah. We've had uh, Rodrigo Prieto on the show, and he talked about how the camera behaves you know, very simply when Frank is the center of attention yes. or the POV, certainly, which is most of the time, obviously. You talk about that, I guess, how that mm. how that translated to editing as well, the mm. simplicity to kind of reflect this character.
1: You know, we hadn't worked with Bob in, in a long time. And certainly when I first worked on Raging Bull, I was stunned by him. I couldn't take my eyes off him when he was in the frame. I, I had just never seen anything like that. And so I wondered, frankly, after 30 years, was he as good and mesmerizing? Well, I found he's even better. He's in the stratosphere of acting, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think it's interesting that a lot of people are going for the Pacino part or the Pesci part for good reasons. I mean, Pacino is so explosive and wonderful, and the way that Pesci is so quiet is is stunning for people. But Bob's performance in this movie, for me, is just extraordinary. He's so subtle, and his body language playing second to two bosses instead of being the boss himself, for example. I asked him, How did you do that? And he never talks about his technique mm-hmm. or his art. And he said, Oh, I just like working with those two guys. So I realized that was the end of the conversation. But uh, just to give you a specific example of how brilliant his acting is in the scene we call the salad scene, where you see Joe Pesci making a salad mm-hmm. again because he owns that Howard Johnson, and he likes to make his own salad, so he has, he just goes in the kitchen because he owns it and does what he wants. The audience doesn't need to know that. They're probably wondering a little, but that's actually good, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: It's like mysterious.
1: Yeah, it's way. mysterious, yeah. and, and that's good. Bob's reactions to Joe telling him that is going to have to go, although, as you may have noticed, The language of the mafia is very opaque and they never say murder, kill, Mm -hmm. offa. They just imply things with this very interesting language. And so he says, We've done all we could for the man. Mm -hmm. And Bob then is really stricken and realizes uh, something terrible is going on that he hadn't realized. And the beautiful performance by Pesci when he says, Don't call him. Mm Wow. I mean, that is the line delivery. That is. It's as serious as he gets the whole movie. Oh, it's a killer. And Bob's reactions there. And again, the thing about him is that he makes you understand all the things that he's feeling without moving. Mm -hmm. And so many younger actors want to move. They think that's important, you know. But Scorsese always says, no, no, no. It should come from here, you know, from inside of you. And Bob just has that down like nobody I've ever seen before. So his reaction to what Pesci's telling him there is remarkable. Then the breakfast scene, as we call it, which starts with the wonderfully banal, what would you like, cornflakes or total? Mm-hmm. Um, when what's going to happen then in that scene is going to be the worst thing that uh De Niro has ever heard as a character.
0: Yeah.
1: And he doesn't move during the time that Pesci is beginning to say you're you're going to take a plane to where to Detroit we're going to Detroit now, No, you're going to Detroit. It's wonderful the way again that opaqueness, mm-hmm. the slow build and the slow sense of dread in him until he finally realizes he's going to have to kill his best friend is astonishing the way he makes you see on his face what he's thinking without moving exactly at all and at the very end, he puts his head back, and there are tears in his eyes. Then he drives them to the airport. You can't quite see what's going on there, but that's a beautiful way his uh, his sunglasses. They were so carefully picked, all the glasses in this movie were very carefully picked. Again, you still feel what he's feeling as he's driving Pesci, and Pesci's just not dealing with Bob's feelings. The wonderful thing of saying Give me your glasses, which, again, is mysterious. People wonder, what is what is that about? Don't
0: leave something behind is what I took away from it. Like, don't accidentally leave your glasses lying around somewhere.
1: And so uh, I think really what it was was that they were trying to figure out what to do when he gets back in the car after mm-hmm. he's killed Hoffa. Mm-hmm. And you can say, how was it? Or how was the trip? Or <laughs> right. no. Uh, and somehow they came up, the two of them, I don't know, with this idea of the glasses. Maybe it's because normally when you go to kill a person, you probably would wear sunglasses. Mm -hmm. And that might have alerted Mm. Al Pacino when they're asking him to get in the car. He Mm. might have been suspicious of that. Mm -hmm. Let me back up because then Bob, he gives him his glasses, he gets in the plane, and the look on his face in that plane is something I, I just, it's magnificent. And we held on the shot too long because we thought it was so amazing mm-hmm. again you can feel exactly what he's thinking it's heartbreaking yeah and so we held on it too long but for a good reason
0: <laughs> well, is there anything you can tell me about uh kind of helping to sculpt this performance in the editing room like did mm-hmm. did, did he play it in notably different ways where you had certain options or was it mm-hmm. all kind of in a certain directional
1: actually bob was so seated in this part that we're using a lot take one on him mm. He had thought about it for a very, very long time, about seven years on this project, and he was really seated in the part. There were moments, for example, when Angelo Bruno chastises him because he was supposed to blow up a laundry. The pacing in that scene is very critical. It's very slow, there's long pauses between the lines. Normally, as an editor, I would have tightened that. But Marty said, no, no, no. We have to be very slow with the pace here because he's gradually realizing he's in very serious trouble. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if he doesn't kill whispers, he would be killed himself. Mm-hmm. That's how serious what's going on is. So that that weird slow pacing there is very deliberate. We didn't have to struggle mm-hmm. to, to create a performance. Many times you do mm-hmm. uh, to shape something, to get it right. They were all just on the money
0: yeah, absolutely and whenever uh when Pacino comes into the movie fifty minutes into the movie, uh shockingly, because it doesn't feel that way, there's more dynamism there to just the filmmaking in general, both in the photography and in the editing. The pace kind of quickens a bit. Yeah. Robbie Robertson's score like really comes in big whenever they're dumping the the cabs into the river and and things like that. so can we just talk about that change of pace and what Hoffa does to this movie once he finally comes into it
1: mm-hmm his explosive nature, whether Jimmy Hoffa was actually that way, I don't know, but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Because even whether this story is true doesn't matter, because what Scorsese wanted to do was use it as a way to build the character of Frank. His surprising behavior, uh, sometimes, you know, he'll be screaming and then he'll suddenly drop his voice to very low, is uh very theatrical, mm-hmm. uh, very bombastic, so different from what Bob is doing. I can't explain it. I think we went with the way he was going mm-hmm. and, uh, again, tried to make sure we were getting the best of it. It's wonderful to have the different flavors in the film. Yeah. The the uh, subtlety of Bob, the explosiveness of Hoffa, and then the quiet of Pesci mm-hmm. is a very interesting combination.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting
1: because, you
0: know, I feel like Hoffa is actually handled... In big chunks, quite a few times throughout the movie, and kind of these long, sort of montage like sequences, the trial sequences, for instance. You know, in many ways, you're working with a structure that's there in the script that Steven's Alien has sort of mapped out brilliantly. But uh, it's just, it's interesting how Hoffa charges the movie that way, how the editing just takes on a whole new kind yes, of Yes,
1: yes, because of him, yes, yeah. because of what he's doing. And well, first of all, let me talk about another long scene, which is what we call the pajama scene, which is so great and he's yelling at first. Then he tries to convince Bob to to run a a local. And then he expresses his love for him in such a wonderful way. And I thought it was so great that Marty wasn't afraid of that scene. Two men in their pajamas in a hotel room. He was totally unafraid of any aspects of homosexuality or Mm. anything. No, he's the bodyguard. That's why you see him put the gun down by the bed. But the beautiful intimacy of the two of them in that scene Came about partially because of their great friendship, but just to show you how surprising Pacino was in the scene where he's told it's what it is, meaning if he doesn't stop attacking the mafia, he's going to be killed. There was a wonderful way that Al responded to that. He held for a long time, much longer than you normally do, and an editor would normally cut that down before he said, they wouldn't dare. Mm -hmm. That was so brilliant the way he did that. <laughs> so that kind of surprising way of delivering a line was delightful for Marty and for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great moment. It's like he's calculating what he just heard. Did I just hear what I just Yes, heard? yes. And just getting back to some of these sort of montage-like sequences, it's interesting to me. I was just talking to my producer about how part of what I feel like doesn't make you feel the length of the film is how a number of these sequences, you're getting so much information across and it's just sweeping. And I'm thinking of stuff like, uh, laying out how the mob worked with the teamsters and how they borrowed money and Kennedy going after Hoffa and the election and all of that. Even the whole final reel starts to play out uh, as, as sort of an extended montage of some sorts, uh, procedurally selecting the coffin, trying to talk to Peggy at the bank, things like that. And
1: the priest, yeah. It's yeah.
0: just this consistent forward momentum, these massive waves of just combined storytelling. Is is that something that just develops as you're trying to figure out how to place things together? As I'm sure, again, it's a little bit of the script, but how, how do you just discover that kind of rhythm?
1: I guess? Well, interestingly, with this movie, as opposed to many movies that we've worked on, Where we did have to struggle to create a structure or uh, revise the structure entirely, like in The Departed. This film had such a brilliant conception that Marty and Steve Zalian had come up with. It fell together really quickly, which is interesting. It's not so much what we did in the editing room as much as it was pre planning and in the writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just fell together. It was incredible. I couldn't believe it because. Really, often I am struggling, trying to cut it down, trying to see would it work better if this scene was earlier or even the drive to Detroit, which I was surprised. I was very nervous about that. I thought, can we really yank the audience out of the trial scene and see Bob changing a tire and and remind them of this long trip? I was nervous. I I didn't think it would work. And Marty was adamant about it. And he was right because I interviewed people. I always interview people after our screenings and they, they said, no, 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 we didn't mind at all. We know mm-hmm. where exactly where we were. Mm-hmm. So it was just beautifully written and thought out. And then the actors so seated in their parts helps a lot. Yeah. Before I move off of performance, I also wanted to talk about Peggy there. Uh,
0: just tell me about how she was used as a character with young Lucy Galena and then later yeah. Anna when this sort of silent, judgmental presence throughout the movie and how to use her, how to cut to her, when to, to to deal with that, because I think it's really delicate and interesting.
1: It was interesting that in the one of the baptism scenes where the first baptism scene is small and then the second baptism scene, Joe Pesci is holding the baby, and it's, it's to indicate to you that Frank has moved up and all the gangsters are there, all the mobsters are there at the baptism. And we struggled a lot with having little Lucy, the young Peggy, looking at the mobsters, hopefully indicating she disapproves of them. She doesn't like them. But when I interviewed people, they're not sure about those looks. They mm. think maybe she's just awkward or nervous. We wanted it to be that she's being judgmental. But I think the thing that really clicks is when she watches her father beat up the grocer. Yeah. Then I think the the look on her face clearly, you you know from that point point on She has a different way of looking at her father. Anna Paquin said to Marty, "I'll do anything to be in the movie. I don't even need a line." She is so brilliant. The minute she comes into the movie, you sense her wherever she is. You get the feeling of her again being the moral alternative to what her father is doing. Yeah, that performance between the two of them when she says, "Why haven't you called Joe?" Mm -hmm. is astounding, and Bob's reaction. Uh, is so complicated. I can't even describe it. And then him going upstairs to call Joe Hoffa is astounding. And you notice we have a strange jump cut there because the way he reacted, his mood as he's about to make this call, which he's dreading, and the way he, he hears her voice and the way he picked up the phone and said, Joe was so perfect, but the rest of the take was not as good as another take. We can morph things. It makes it look as if there isn't a cut there. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't. Our brilliant man who does that tried and he couldn't. So Marty said, just leave it as a jump cut. And the jump cuts in the film, I think, do fit with the texture of what life in the mafia is about. It's rough. yeah. You know, and so those sort of startling jump cuts sometimes are very good, including the titles that just pop up out Mm -hmm. of nowhere, shot in the head or blown up. That was a very strong idea marty had even the shape of them as a block instead of a title running along the bottom of the frame mm-hmm. it's much more shocking and so that that again is part of the texture of the film i think that that gives you a feeling of life in the mafia yeah uh dangerous and sudden and you may not know what's coming next
0: i think that jump cut really works in the phone call too just because he's so utterly outside himself yeah. at that point i mean he's got his eyes closed for half the conversation. It's such a sort of odd position for a human to be in, you know? So it kind of calls on some kind of an interesting shift in how you're telling story.
1: Yeah. And that that phone call is take one.
0: Really? Yeah. He's amazing in that. that.
1: Then the juxtaposition of her face as when he gets up, I'm going to call her now, he says. He gets up, has another drink, watches the TV, walks upstairs. We cut to Peggy. And that's where you hear the older. Frank say, "I lost my daughter that day. It's just mm-hmm. the combination of her face, her anger, her fury at what she knows her father's done, and the old man. It's just stunning." i Yeah, um, and see, that's all thought out by Marty. He shot that shot of her for that purpose to prelap the voiceover, mm-hmm. and then Bob on the phone. Yeah, and I, I can't figure out what Bob is doing. You know his. his brilliance as an actor is a mystery, which is good. Everything he does in the movie is a mystery because I, I I said to Marty, some of the most moving things, for example, when he's with the priest, and by the way, the priest was crying after every take in that when we were shooting. He was so moved by wow. Bob. I saw him wiping away tears and he's a real priest. But the way Bob can't say, I'm sorry, he just can't do it. And I said to Marty, how does he do it? And Marty said to me, I don't know.
0: <laughs> He's not a bad actor, that yeah. Robert De Niro.
1: Sometimes I can figure out how actors are doing things. I cannot figure him out. And yeah. that's brilliant because it's one of the great mysteries. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about just briefly the use of In the Still of the Night. When did that decision come in? And was there a thought of using it differently from how it's used, more than how it's used, anything like that?
1: Again, with this movie, Marty had said that he had it in his head right away. He said to me, there are two reasons. I use it there at the end of the movie and over the wedding to make the wedding feel like a funeral. The slow motion also helps make it feel like a funeral instead of a happy event. And the look on Bob's face there again is. So he said, first of all, they kill in the night. And secondly, it's the end of his life. And mm. Uh, That's why it works so beautifully as the beginning and the end of the movie. And he knew that before he started shooting the movie. He often goes into a hotel room to conceive of the movie, and he listens to a lot of music. But uh, he said that song was already there. Mm -hmm. Amazing. hmm?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's iconic instantly, you know?
1: Yeah. And the wedding is just... I was sort of shocked when I saw the wedding, you know, why the extreme slow motion and then putting that song there. But it does make it feel like a funeral. Yeah. For Bob, it's just a terrible, terrible moment.
0: Can you tell me about anything that you guys might have discovered uh, in the editing room? Uh, I'm guessing by some of the things we talked about, maybe not here because this was so meticulously planned. But were Mm -hmm. there any scenes that sort of took on a different life than how they were written and how they were shot once you started editing them?
1: I don't think so, actually. I don't know why Why his conception was so strong and, and, and carried through so beautifully on this movie. I think maybe he'd always been wanting to make a movie about why you shouldn't be in the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> and he had hoped that Goodfellas was going to do that. Mm. But it didn't because people just, oh, love Goodfellas, the food, the <laughs> you know, yeah. the music. And I think he realized, he said when Bob came to him to really want to play this part, Bob was so emotional in the office that he realized this is pure gold. We have to do this. And I think their two needs and their deep understanding of the mafia clicked. And it, Marty just, it, it, it fell into place, I think, so well because of that.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you said that, you know, sometimes when you read the script, you sort of put it away because yes. he'll, he'll put things in there that mm-hmm. weren't in the script. I'm I'm curious if there were any examples here, any improvisation of note, stuff like
1: that. Not all our films have improvisation. You wouldn't have improvisation in a film like Silence, for example, right. or Age of Innocence. Yeah, right. But this one, I don't think so. It Sometimes, as I said, Pacino was surprising, yeah. you know, the way he can't get the line out when he's screaming at his Teamsters is, yeah. was, was very surprising. <laughs> what we were surprised by was the incredible relationship of Bob to Al in the movie. We didn't expect, I think, that love to be expressed as well as it is in the movie. Mm-hmm. That developed during the shooting. Mm-hmm.
0: You probably get this question a lot,
1: but I'm just curious do you guys do you disagree in the editing room? are there, are there <laughs> fights at this stage in your careers? We've never really fought over uh his movies. I think that's why Marty wanted to work with me because he had had experiences of fighting with editors, particularly mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, so he trusted me, I think, from the beginning that I would do what was right for his film, so we don't argue with each other. We do have differences sometimes, and we'll try it one way and then my way and we'll screen it and see what people say but it's not often yeah at all who's
0: right more often than not (laughs) marty uh you know this movie is a sort of noted culmination of his work with de niro and pesci and much of the family of this crew these crew members he's he's put together uh, and worked with throughout the years and of course you so I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, particularly as this film is about looking back at life and squaring yourself with what you've done and and all of that, how did that element hit you while you were working on it?
1: You know, it's not my particular look at life. It's very much Marty's. From the time he was a child listening to priests uh, lecture their audiences about life and your need to be responsible for what you've done but it's not the way i've ever looked at things so it was very much marty's feeling that he pumped into the movie and that mm-hmm. i my job was then to to make it work
0: mhm so there were no feelings of just this this long journey you've been on and how that kind of felt sort of reflective in the themes
1: N- not as much as with him i don't think yeah i've had a very different life from him sure he he's a pessimist i'm an optimist <laughs> and I didn't grow up in that very intense world. Yeah. he said that his the the mothers would be told, take the kids off the street at two o'clock. And that would be because there was going to be a killing on the street. Oh, wow. And so the kids would be pulled inside. Somebody would be killed, taken away, and the kids would go out to play. There were rats in the walls. There was a, a, a very intense feeling of fear about what the local boss on that block could do to you. Mm-hmm. Even though his father did not want to be part of the mafia, his uncle was. So I think growing up in that very strange, scary, but also rich in terms of the Sicilian culture was so different from the way I was brought up. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. It's made for
0: the alchemy that you've had over the years, I think. (laughs) And then uh, the last thing here, right before I wind it down, you've worked almost exclusively with Mr. Scorsese your whole career. And I'm just curious, you know, what have been the pros and cons of that for you? I mean, it's it's such an interesting
1: career to have had, you know? Well, you're working at the top of the world when you work with Scorsese. His films are brilliant, always challenging, always different. He never wants to repeat himself. And there's nothing like being with him. He is so interesting to listen to, to work with, to collaborate with. I've had it all with him. I Why would I work with anybody else? He's the best. <laughs> and um, he sometimes has asked me to doctor some movies of somebody, a director will come and say, can someone help me with this? And he's asked me to do that. Mm-hmm. That's always in between his movies. So, but other than that, I don't want to work with anybody else. Yeah. He's the best.
0: Well, it is one of the great collaborations and, uh, y- you know, you've received yet another Oscar nomination for your work. Congratulations yeah. Yeah. on that. Yes. I think you deserve it. Thank you very much. <laughs> now we've just got a couple of sort of rapid fire questions for you, aside from the movies, <laughs> sort of getting to know you stuff at the end of things here. Do you have a go to junk food when you're spending hours toiling away in the editing room?
1: I think I would have to say if I'm come home very late and don't have time, it's a it's a hot dog, <laughs> <Yep>. okay, because <laughs> it cooks really fast. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense.
0: When you're having trouble cracking a scene or you hit any kind of creative block, how do you break out of that? Is there a particular...
1: I always say to students and things, turn off the machine and go home,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> and sleep. And get up fresh and, and attack it again. Yeah. It, you, you do. You do get very frustrated sometimes. And, uh, but beating your head against the wall after a certain point is no good. Refresh yourself. Think about something else and clear your brain.
0: Yeah. Try again. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, is there a recent movie that really inspired you by how it was edited?
1: One of the problems is that I work so hard either on Marty's movies or on my husband's diaries, which I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. I don't see enough but I must say, I was very impressed by Souvenir, mm. uh, directed by Joanna Hogg, which Marty executive produced and worked very heavily with her on the editing of it. I found that very refreshing and interesting. I should have seen many more movies and maybe I would have <laughs> given you a better answer. No, that's
0: good. That's but, one of the few I haven't gotten to yet, so I'll move it to the top yeah, of my Yeah, it, it's,
1: it's very, very interesting. It's lovely to see these younger directors that Marty is encouraging all the time particularly in Britain, which is interesting yeah, because of his deep love of English films and what he did to restore the careers of Powell and Pressburger. It's interesting that he's now working with a totally different generation. Yeah. Very far removed from Powell and Pressburger. Yeah. It's part of the legacy here, I think. Yeah.
0: And then the last thing here, everybody gets this question at the end. uh, What is the movie that made you fall in love with
1: movies? It's very interesting. Uh, I think you've heard that Scorsese learned so much about directing from this program called Million Dollar Movie, which ran the same movie nine times in one week on television. They were often bad copies, black and white, if it was a color film, or badly cut. But Marty was able to study them nine times in the week until his mother said, if you run that movie one more time, I'm going to kill you. And I happened accidentally to see a film of my husband's that I had no idea at that point I was ever gonna meet this man <laughs> called The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Mm. And it was on Million Dollar Movie, and I wasn't supposed to be looking at television. My mother worked as a nursery school teacher. When she would come home, she would put her hand on the T V to see if it was warm. <laughs> but I was able to sneak in this one that I was I think I was about fifteen. And it's such a remarkable movie to this day. I mean, Marty and I could watch that movie a hundred times and we'd never get tired of it. It's very unique. Uh, and I was quite taken with it, little knowing. I was 15 years old. I never thought I would become a filmmaker. And isn't that interesting that many, many years later, the genius who made that film would be saved by Marty, who would have taught Marty so much, would be saved by him and then become my husband. Absolutely. <laughs> and, but as you said, It deeply affected me and as a work of art. So I think that would be the first one that maybe started triggering something in my brain so that when I later saw that ad that said, willing to train assistant film editor, I answered it.
0: That's just a movie magic story right there. Mm hmm. Well, uh, thank you so much for okay, sitting down with me. Okay, I hope I got me. you what you needed. Oh, you got me everything I needed. It's <laughs> just a pleasure, to, an honor to sit down with you again.
1: I and do talk remember about us that. having that long. <laughs> it was
0: a great lunch. I was just telling Thelma before we started recording, we had lunch uh, a few years ago when she was promoting Wolf of Wall Street, and it's one of my favorite memories in, in so. that
1: restaurant bar.
0: Yeah, Beverly Wilshire. Uh,
1: yes, I remember that. That's wonderful.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank again. you. Again, we have two more guests adding to the discussion this week, so let's hear from them real quick.
2: My name is Tom Fleischman, and my craft is a re-recording mixer.
3: My name is Eugene Garrity, and my craft is sound editing. I don't want to bog down too much before
0: diving in with Tom and Eugene here, but this was a fun conversation. It was the day after they received nominations from the Cinema Audio Society, which had caught them by surprise. They were both fighting some instincts going into the shaping of what you hear in The Irishman. This movie, as you've obviously heard from the various crew members we've had on the show, was not meant to be an overt stylistic endeavor. It's not the flash of Goodfellas and Casino. It's one of Scorsese's most meditative explorations, really, and much of the filmmaking was about just getting out of the way. So let's hear how that translated to the sound. All right, guys. Tom and Eugene, first of all, I want to say congratulations. Uh, Was it yesterday? I'm losing my train of thought here, but uh, Cinema Audio Society nomination, first of all. Yes. Congratulations. Thank Thank you. you. And uh, also, Tom, you're getting the Lifetime Achievement Award this year. Yes. It's fantastic. But you're not slowing down,
2: right? No, I'm not. I'm not done yet. (laughs) That's
0: fantastic. Congrats (laughs) on that.
3: Excellent. Well deserved. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Let's dive in here on the sound of The Irishman. Um, This had to be a unique project, you know, particularly for your work, actually, Eugene, on the editing side. You're kind of stripping away instincts, I would think, like what what you might normally be pushing to do. So let's talk about that, first of all, just how it was such a unique project with that in mind.
3: Yeah, it's it's actually a very good question. And probably the most um, interesting part of it was how unique this was. Um, You know, we prepared everything from... Every foley, every footstep, all the backgrounds, all the sound effects were there. And bear in mind, I did her work early on that was um, requested by Thelma and Marty. So if one thinks that through a little, that sort of becomes, those were the most important sounds. Mm -hmm. So this was going in that direction, uh, understandably, where uh, if they didn't ask for it, the importance was less. That's typical how they work. Mm -hmm. But in the case of this one, they... Very strongly felt that the production sound was part of the intimacy and the quietness and the perspective of being very personal and uh, in the mo- in the head of the actors. so we we quite deliberately um, backed away from the norm of you know mixing in every foley and all the backgrounds they were very specifically um, selected mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, you know, Tom and I used to, you know, go in and do what we do for a while, which is put in all the good sounds and then get the right balance on those. And Mm -hmm. in this case, it was was very subtle.
2: Yeah. I was told right from the beginning by Thelma and Marty that uh, they wanted this movie to be mono. And obviously it didn't wound up to be that way. But (laughs) but that was their focus, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a, a good way to introduce me to the project, particularly the music. Thelma at one point said to me, "Marty wants all the music to be mono. He doesn't want to use any surrounds or spread or anything like that." In the beginning of the film, uh, not with the opening song that was was in stereo, but some of the cues in the beginning of the movie were actually right from the center speaker. Uh, the period pieces back from the fifties, you know, it was made clear to us right from the get go that the movie was different and the focus was going to be on the performances of the actors and the characters and their relationships. And it told through the dialogue and the the performances were all very restrained and quiet, particularly Joe Pesci. Yeah. Uh, Obviously Al Pacino was a little bit more boisterous, but, but Joe and Bob were both very, very restrained in their performances. Yeah. So, um, uh, it was a different approach, really, right from the get-go.
0: I'm going to jump ahead here because I had a question about that idea that there was like a mono vibe that he, he was hoping for. And I, I just, you, you think about things like immersion and the immersive quality of sound, but this kind of like is a different thing. So what does that mean for storytelling? Like what, what, what is putting it in, in more directional sound in a more directional way?
2: Uh, I think in terms of the mix, it was yeah. just to keep things really focused yeah. on the performances. And on the relationships between the characters, even in the silences, you know, Anna Paquin's performance was practically silent. Yeah. It was all in looks. And a lot of the, lot of the stuff between Frank and Russell mm-hmm. Buffalino was told just through the way they looked at each other. Mm-hmm. You know, just in the shots, just, the, you know, the expression on their faces and yeah. in their eyes. It was very important to them that nothing interfere with that in terms of the sound, any extraneous sounds from off-screen were really kept to a bare minimum. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, stuff like Gene said, Foley was very carefully selected. uh, We were told right from the get-go that Marty didn't want any Foley whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yeah. Are you like, why am I here? (laughs) Initially, you know, uh, absolutely, it's it's like that. But uh, I think we all got it at some point throughout the process that this was a unique project. And if you look back on, and Tommy's done almost all of them, of course, says these films, the way that they're all interesting sounding films in one way or another, they're, they're, they can be quite amazing and other times just unique or just, just interesting and quiet. But this was, it was almost like a, a new way of working mm-hmm. where it was, what can we do to not to interfere with the uh, emotional playing back and forth between the two characters, which Is about betrayal. It's about, you know, honesty. It's about loyalty. And I mean, Mm -hmm. how do you get that in a picture, in a movie? How do you, and Marty's and Thelma's idea of, of stripping away to make that lay bare in front of you. There were no distracting birds or anything to take the audience away from. Oh my God, these two guys in a room and they're talking and that's all that matters right now. Mm -hmm. And even though we did have backgrounds in, in many cases, they were requested and they were very specific. I said this before in other interviews, it's it's still a hard job to come up with that stuff, even though it's quite subtle. You could say, yeah, there's no sound in that movie. And there really isn't. But what is there wasn't just thought, you know, just quickly put in. It was mm-hmm. very much thought out between all of us. Thelma would, you know, instruct me to come up with something and Tommy and I would work to get that into the mix. But it was all very much thought out. It, it's It's quiet for a reason. And the one sound you do hear is the sound that they wanted at that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned Thelma there. I was going to ask you guys, like, how do you, how do you work with Thelma when, when it comes to this side of things?
2: Usually, I mean, I, I don't know how you guys prep with, but at the mix, uh, usually Phil Stockton, our, our other supervisor, the dialogue supervisor, and Gene, uh, who also was mixing on the Irishman. He handled all the sound mm-hmm. effects at the mix. I handled the dialogue and the music. We'll work alone to put together something that we feel makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then Thelma will come in and and look at that and we'll tweak it. She knows exactly what Marty is looking for. She's been doing temp mixes for months while they're editing. So she knows exactly the kind of balances that Marty wants and how he wants things to play. And she'll help us shape it into her vision of what she assumes Marty will go for. Mm And then once we've completed that part of the process, Marty will come in, and we tweak it some more, mm-hmm. and he'll you know give his his input on things.
0: And you've worked with him obviously, as as Eugene said, for a ever long time. since uh, yeah, ever Raging since Bull, King right? of Comedy, King of Comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: actually, I did a couple of temp mixes on, on Raging Bull, but uh, really the first film that I worked with him on was King of Comedy, with Dick Vorsek, who was my guru.
0: tell me about you know just how mr scorsese i I want to call him marty but i just i always stop myself it's it's not like we hang out (laughs) but mr scorsese tell me about how he uh philosophies about sound i mean i assume every movie is obviously different but just working with him and how he quote directs you
3: guys
2: yeah well i know that on most of the pictures i've worked with him on uh he'll come to the mix the first for the first time and the first thing he'll say to me is Tom, I want to hear the dialogue, but I also want to hear the music, and I want to hear the sound effects. And you know, with with his films and I think really with any film, there's always one thing at any given moment in the film that's the most important element in the track. So he's very keen on on making sure that the dialogue is clear, that the voices seem natural, that they're not too processed and over-equalized. And he also works with the music in terms of the relationship between the music and the dialogue. It's very, very carefully thought out and very carefully edited. He and Thelma work both very hard to create the relationship between the dialogue and the music. And so there may be a particular drum beat or a particular guitar note or a particular lyric that needs to poke through, Mm -hmm. you know, between two words of dialogue or two words of voiceover. And those things are very important. Also, the transitions between one piece of music and another between one scene and another, mm-hmm. really their main focus is, is on getting those transitions correct.
0: I always find it interesting with his movies that the score typically not always, but is minimal and, and how it's used and in, in how it's kind of, you know, the stuff he's done with Howard Shore over the years. And, uh, this is an interesting movie because it's that, but it's also not like it's a movie full of needle drops, you know, it's, it's yeah. not like, right.
3: right. Which oftentimes know. his movies are. Yeah. And, um, he uses that to great effect, I think. Uh, and what Tom was saying, there will literally be one word, of a, one lyric of a song that is probably the reason why he chose that cue for that scene. Mm-hmm. And that has to come through clearly in between two lines of dialogue or whatever. And it's, that's the whole point of that cue for that, that scene. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty amazing.
0: I love the score for this movie, too. As minimal yeah. as it is, it's so haunting and awesome. Robbie Robertson.
2: That was the one area where we did open things up, and we did use Atmos Mm -hmm. uh, with the harmonica and uh, some of the instrumentation in in the the Robbie Robertson cues. Yeah, for the most part, the uh, the needle drops, all the songs were played as almost as source. Yeah, you know, in the restaurant, Mm -hmm. in the background. You know, some of the scenes were quite boisterous in the beginning. There's those scenes in the in the bar when he meets Skinny Razor, where every even the extras were talking on the set. So the dialogue was you know, somewhat obscured in places, mm-hmm. and the music had to, had to fight that. Like Marty says, I, have, I want to hear the dialogue, we want to hear the mm-hmm. music, and we want to hear he was very uh, interested in how it would work if the extras didn't just mouth and mm-hmm. actually were boisterous in that scene. And I think it worked pretty well.
0: Yeah. You know, I often think of, of mixing as kind of sculpting pulling things away and such. And, and we've talked about how this was, I don't want to say simple, but for lack of a better word, but was the track ever fuller and you pulled things down or was it always more about what you were putting in? Do you know what I
3: mean? Yeah. Right off the bat, I think by day two, I had put all my faders for all the folios at infin- infinity, mm-hmm. uh, because Thelma would ask quite often throughout the day, are, we, are you playing Foley? And, if I did or inadvertently, she says, well, we don't we're not sure we want to hear that right now. Mm-hmm. Let, let Marty hear that. So in this case, it, we stripped away everything initially and just put things back as needed. And mm-hmm. again, there was a fair amount of sound effects, editing and design early on that was yes. in the movie uh, throughout their temp mixing. So that was always there front and center at the level that um, they were used to hearing. But when it came time for for instance, the scene where Frank uh is in the airport outside of Detroit, getting on and off the plane, we initially had Foley footsteps for his walking across the tarmac and all that got all that got stripped away uh for production, um, which makes it even quieter, which makes you listen a little more and lean in a little more. And it's really
0: haunting that scene. When absolutely. You see the plane take off and go over the lake yeah. and it's just like I had read the book. Knowing what's happening there is really compelling.
3: Yeah, I, I have to say it's, it's almost like, a you know, a foreign film or a documentary. And it's in the way that the sound has its association with the characters and what we're used to hearing in modern age, even on television, when we're used to hearing full tracks on everything with every horn honk and everything in there. Yeah. And leave it to Marty to hang a left turn and say, you know, (laughs) anybody can do that. Let's do something really interesting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You did get to be a little creative, well, a lot creative, I'm sure, throughout. But with these kind of younger tenors of their voices for the earlier Mm -hmm. scenes, uh, tell me about that, Tom, with with playing with that. Well,
2: that took some experimentation. Yeah. Uh, I began by listening to scenes from Serpico and King of Comedy to see what, they sounded like when they were young, Bob Pacino and and Bob De Niro. I had tried a couple of plugins. I I tried some pitch changing to try and match the quality of their voices from those earlier films. That didn't really work. It was too extreme. Uh, They sounded, you know, like chipmunks. (laughs) That was not the nature of the performances. They wanted to really keep those performances pure. What wound up happening was that Phil Stockton went in and did some editorial surgery on the tracks, particularly De Niro, uh, where he removed the kind of heavy breathing, some of the raspiness that was happening between the words that was making it sound like he was older. And, and then he did some slight pitch changing, and that was really all that was done. So in a way, you're
0: kind of manipulating the performance. We did so, manipulate yeah. it a little yeah. bit,
2: and it was really only for the first, probably the first hour or so, maybe... Yeah hour and a half of the film that we had to use those techniques because by that time time had marched on and these guys were older and they could speak in their natural voices yeah so by the time you know we get to the Kennedy thing it's already you know 10 or 15 years have gone by you know De Niro I think probably put some effort into trying to make himself sound younger somehow
0: hmm he could probably pull that off <laughs> Eugene, let's talk about like violence when gunfire happens, things like that when there's eruptions of like mm-hmm. was there a philosophy behind you know, how you wanted to affect the audience with those moments?
3: Yeah, and we discussed that um early on. the go to gun Frank was using throughout the movie was a snub nose thirty eight mm-hmm. Thelma had requested that be sent over for various scenes early on that I cut in. Basically, the production sounds were pretty good then, and we used them, and I sweetened those in most cases. The perfect example is the Umberto Clamhouse when he shoots Crazy Joe Gallo. Tom had the production track of the gunshots interior and then exterior, and I sweetened those with a 38. I put some slap echo on it for the exterior. The recordings of the 38 I had had some um, natural interior mm-hmm. slap echo on them from the actual recording. That worked really well in, say, the house uh, where Hoffa is eventually killed.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Again, think about this. The scene that the, um, it's the Italian day in Columbus Circle where somebody gets shot. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, Joe Colombo. Marty uses one gunshot, even though there's two. You know, he doesn't, <laughs> and we put it in. You know, I never even thought about it. It's of course you're going to want two gunshots, right? And uh, that wasn't an attempt that way. So it was quite, we we took it out. and you know. It's is again fascinating seeing a master filmmaker make his choices for for the film that he wants to make, and yeah, uh, yeah the the guns were pretty straight up, nothing nothing too cannon like, no, nothing big and and massive, but uh, effective and pretty realistic.
2: Well, as you say, he was always always using small guns. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about the Joe Gallo shooting was that there was a lot of screaming and movement and and dialogue that was happening while the gunshots were going off. Mm -hmm. And obviously they didn't want to have to ADR all that. So we were really stuck with the production gunshots. We had to use them and, and Gene had to sweeten those because we couldn't Mm -hmm. do without them.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Also, is there much to say about, uh, differentiating the sort of eras? Because obviously Rodrigo with his work, he's, he's giving it a different look for the early part of the film and then into the 60s and the 70s he's, he's got his different kind of shades and how he's telling the story visually i'm just curious if there was any any thought behind changing how you would tell the story uh sonically
2: i think most of that was done with the music yeah because the music was all from the period of whatever whatever period we were in yeah i don't know that perhaps maybe some of the car sound effects yeah, and things yeah. Like
3: that. i actually built a fair amount of the car backgrounds in the earlier scenes just because i had Multiple um, older cars that I could build a background from that was a good sound. It wasn't some old mono recording of 50s traffic. Yeah. But to be honest, it, it was all very subtle. Yeah. You, you would, you'd notice it more in the car they were driving, say, that the V8 would be a hefty mm-hmm. big V8 in the Mercury Marquee that Chucky drives versus the LTD that Frank uses to drive to the airport. Or, of course, their boat, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, the Lincoln Continental town car that was the main sort of boat that they were driving in throughout the whole story. Yeah. Uh, again, and the Hudson. Yeah, the Hudson. Right.
2: I mean, a lot of that was production.
3: Right. Uh, that one scene where he cases the Cadillac cleaners, uh, laundry, that was important to Marty in terms of the sound of the car being an underpinning to these, this cue that was like, a, was it a Bolero? It was yeah, it was, very, yes, it was a, a very cool music cue. And it was literally Marty was excited over a simple crossfade or the way that from one cut to another that the engine appeared from a very low level to barely audible. And he felt that fit really well with mm-hmm. the music. And it was all a balance of subtlety like that, that was very effective and very important to him. Well, tell me this given that uh, this was such an unusual you know, project
0: and what you might have expected to do on it. What did you learn on this one? I mean, you you guys have been at this a long time, but maybe you still have some things to learn. You tell me.
2: Well, I learned that a quiet, restrained movie like this could be nominated for a CAS award.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Were you not expecting that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Their faces now are great. It's brilliant. (laughs) Um, I would have (laughs) second that one for sure. Less is more. What is important in telling the story? Is it affecting the scene positively in the mind of this director who, you know, is very much an artist and this is what he has chosen to have his movie sound like. And I've mentioned this a couple of times. That's still work. That's still somebody's job. Yeah. And I've said it in interviews too, where it's it's actually harder sometimes. Mm -hmm. When you have the explosion in front of you, you can put in the glass shards and you can put in the sweetener in the low end and the mid range and all that and make it in five one and and really go, yeah, that just exploded. And we did do that, in fact, in this movie with explosions and such. But it's it's a lot trickier when you're in a hotel room with two guys talking and they still need things to help the motion of the scene. Mm -hmm. And it has to be really simple things. So, again, I learned a lot.
2: One thing is that um, I've always thought that in terms of mixing, everyone seems to think that the big, loud action sequences with, millions of effects and lots of loud music and people shouting and screaming is the hardest thing to mix. And from my experience over decades of doing this, it's these quiet, intimate dialogue scenes in a quiet room between two people that can be the most challenging Mm -hmm. because you always have some kind of environmental issue on the set. How do we eliminate that without affecting the quality of the voices and the quality of the performances? And that was a big challenge on this film.
0: Yeah, but was there much ADR, by the
2: way? Very little. Yeah. Very little. Sometimes it was just one or two words in mm-hmm. a sentence. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I just want to close here by uh, I'm going to ask you a question I've, I've been asking everyone on the show at the end. But uh, what is the movie? This is separate from The Irishman. What is the movie that made you guys fall in love with the movies? I'll start with you, Tom.
2: Dr. Strangelove. Oh, that's a good answer. Why? I just love that movie. I mean, it's yeah. my favorite movie of all time. I've watched it dozens and dozens of times, and it always speaks to me. It always makes me laugh. Yeah. My family was all in, very involved in motion pictures. My mother was a film editor. My father was a producer-director for the network's documentaries. And so I kind of grew up with it. It's in my blood, so that's probably the biggest answer to the question. Yeah. But in terms of particular movies, Dr. Strangelove was that's
3: a great answer how about you eugene well speaking of blood uh i have to say in cold blood Uh, oh nice uh uh, that movie uh for whatever reason was so haunting and i'm assuming you say movies as movies not movies for sound yes just movies as movies yeah and that and that that one for some reason struck me as a young person um uh, that uh, fascinated me. That you you could be that scary, and it's 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 real life stuff happening. It's a horror film in a way, uh, in the sense of horrific things happen, but it's in black. This beautiful black and white, and it's Conrad uh, Hall, man, yeah, beautiful yeah, photography, yeah. yeah. And um, so that one, I would say, um, and maybe just if I can give a, a plan it. B, uh, it shows my age too. I was so struck by Le Mans, the uh, Steve McQueen movie, yeah as a kid, that also just, just got me hooked into the idea of cinema and I was clueless about editing or anything like that. But I just liked the, I, when I found out later what editing was and how the editing was done so wonderfully with engine noises and cutting and how that, that changed and gave this emotional, you know, um, movement to the movie, it was just, it was like a revelation.
0: So that would be your answer to like, which movie? Yeah. Got for sound. How about you for that? <laughs> speaking of.
2: Oh gosh. Um, well, Apocalypse Now, obviously. Oh, good one. And Nashville.
0: That's good. Oh, That's yeah. C- yeah. 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 C- 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 yeah, yeah. Apocalypse Now, man. What an incredible track. Well, thanks so much, guys, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And congratulations for your unexpected <laughs> Cinema Audio Society Award nomination, crazy. I should you say. Uh, okay. But thank you again. All right. Well, then, I think between Thelma, Tom, Eugene and our previous guests, Rodrigo Prieto, Sandy Powell and Christopher Peterson, we've given you a fairly comprehensive view of the epic filmmaking endeavor that was The Irishman. And I think 10 Oscar nominations are a testament to that. But to bring things back to our featured guest, Thelma Schoonmaker is a national treasure. I mean, I've had the pleasure to sit down with her a number of times over the years, and it's always such an illuminating chat. And I have to say, I'd love to see her walk away with Oscar number four this year, because she deserves it. It takes a special kind of voodoo to make 200 minutes sail by like this. And even if you're someone who felt the length of this film, I don't think you can argue with how the scenes and sequences are expertly constructed. That's what half a century in your trade gets you craft excellence. So, The Irishman is available to stream on Netflix right now. If you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Go watch it. If you have seen it, watch it again. I've seen it a number of times, and I think it's a masterpiece. Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhart and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode, and a special thanks to the team at
1: Netflix.